0: PART One, CHAPTERS One and Two OF HOW I FILMED THE WAR This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. HOW I FILMED THE WAR When I was in France, I made arrangements with my friend Mr. Lowe Warren, at that time editor of the Kinematograph Weekly, to arrange the manuscript I sent him for publication in book form. The manuscript has in no way been altered in any material respect, and is in the form in which I originally wrote it. Geoffrey H. Mallins How I Filmed the War A Record of the Extraordinary Experiences of the Man Who Filmed the Great Sum Battles, etc. By Lieutenant Geoffrey H. Mallins, O.B.E. Edited by Low Warren Herbert Jenkins Limited, York Street, St. James, London, South West 1, 1920. Part 1. How I Filmed the War Chapter 1. A Few Words of Introduction Fate has not been unkind to me. I have had my chances, particularly during the last two or three years, and, well, I have done my best to make the most of what has come my way. That and nothing more how i came to be entrusted with the important commission of acting as official war office kinematographer is an interesting story and the first few chapters of this book recount the sequence of events that led up to my being given the appointment let me begin by saying that i am not a writer i am just a movie man as they called me out there my mind is stored full to overflowing with the impressions of all i have seen and heard recollections of adventures crowd upon me thick and fast thoughts flash through my mind and almost tumble over one another as i strive to record them yet at times when i take pen in hand to write them down they seem to elude me for the moment and make the task more difficult than i had anticipated in the following chapters i have merely aimed at setting down in simple language a record of my impressions so far as i can recall them of what i have seen of many and varied phases of the great drama which has now been played to a finish on the other side of the English Channel. Most of those recollections were penned at odd moments, soon after the events chronicled, when they were still fresh in mind, often within range of the guns. It was my good fortune for two years to be one of the official war office kinematographers. I was privileged to move about on the Western Front with considerable freedom. My actions were largely untrammeled. I had my instructions to carry out, my superiors to satisfy, my work to do, and i endeavoured to do all that has been required of me to the best of my ability never thinking of the cost or consequences to myself of an adventure so long as i secured a pictorial record of the deeds of our heroic army in france i have striven to make my pictures worthy of being preserved as a permanent memorial of the greatest drama in history that is the keynote of this record as an official kinematographer i have striven to be and I have tried all the time to realize that I was the eyes of the millions of my fellow countrymen at home. In my pictures I have endeavored to catch something of the glamour as well as the awful horror of it all. I have caught a picture here, a picture there, a scene in this place, a scene in that, and all the time at the back of my mind has always been the thought, that will give them some idea of things as they are out here. My pictures have never been taken with the idea of merely making pictures, nor with the sole idea as some people think of merely providing a thrill i regarded my task in a different light to that to me has been entrusted the task of securing for the enlightenment and education of the people of today and of future generations such a picture as will stir their imaginations and thrill their hearts with pride this by way of introduction now to proceed with my task the telling of the adventures of a kinematograph cameraman in wartime. From my early days I was always interested in photography, and boyish experiments eventually led me along the path to my life's vocation. In time I took up the study of kinematography and joined the staff of the Clarendon Film Company of London and Croydon, one of the pioneer firms in the industry. There I learned much and made such progress that in time i was entrusted with the filming of great productions which cost thousands of pounds to make from there i went to the gaumont company and i was in the service of this great anglo-french film organization when war broke out during the early days of the autumn of 1914 i was busily occupied in filming various scenes in connection with the war in different parts of the country one day when i was at the london office of the company i was sent for by the chief We want a man to go out to Belgium to get some good stuff. Stuff, let me say, is the technical or slang term for film-pictures. How would you like to go?" "'Go?' I asked. "'I'm ready. When? Now?' "'As soon as you like.' "'Right. I'm ready,' I said, without a moment's hesitation, little thinking of the nature of the adventure upon which I was so eager to embark. And so it came about. Provided with the necessary cash and an aeroscope camera, i started off next day and the following chapters record a few of my adventures in search of pictorial material for the screen chapter 2 with the belgians at ramskapel leaving london i crossed to france i arranged as far as possible to get through from calais to furne and with the greatest of good luck i managed it arriving at my destination at 11 o'clock at night as usual it was raining hard Starting out next day for the front line, I reached the district where a battalion was resting. I was allowed in their quarters. Addressing one of the men, I asked if he could speak English. No, monsieur, and making a sign to me to remain, he hurried off. Back came the fellow with an officer. What do you want, monsieur? said he in fine English. You speak English well, I replied. Yes, monsieur. I was in England for four years previous to the war. So I explained my position. "'I want to accompany you to the trenches "'to take some kinema films.' "'After exchanging a few words, "'he took me to his superior officer, "'who extended every courtesy to me. "'I explained to him what I was desirous of doing. "'But it is extraordinary, monsieur, "'that you should take such risks for pictures. "'You may in all probability get shot.' "'Possibly, sir,' I replied, "'but to obtain genuine scenes "'one must be absolutely in the front line.' "'Ah, you English,' he said you are extraordinaire. Suddenly taking me by the arm, he led me to an outhouse. At the door we met his captain. Introducing me, he began to explain my wishes. By the looks and the smiles, I knew things were going well for me. Calling the interpreter, the captain said, If you accompany my men to the trenches, you may get killed. You must take all risks. I cannot be held responsible. Remember. And with a smile, he turned and entered the house hardly realizing my good fortune i nearly hugged my new friend the lieutenant monsieur i said saluting i am un belge soldat pro thème. laughingly he told me to get my kit ready and from a soldier who could speak english i borrowed a water-bottle and two blankets going round to the back of the farm i came upon the rest of the men being served out with coffee from a copper awaiting my turn i had my water-bottle filled then the bread rations were served out with tinned herrings. Obtaining my allowance I stowed it away in my knapsack, rolled up my blanket and fixed it on my back, and was ready. Then the fall-in was sounded. What a happy-go-lucky lot! No one would have thought these men were going into battle, and that many of them would probably not return. This unfortunately turned out to be only too true. In my interest in the scene and anxiety to film it, I was forgetting to put my own house in order. What if I don't come back, I suddenly thought. Begging some paper, I wrote a letter addressed to my firm, telling them where I had gone, and where to call at Firn for my films in the event of my being shot. Addressing it, I left it in charge of an officer, to be posted if I did not return, and requested that if anything happened to me, my stuff should be left at my café in Firn shaking me by the hand he said he sincerely hoped it would not be necessary laughingly i bade him adieu falling in with the other men we started off with the cheers and good wishes of those left behind ringing in our ears it was still raining and as we crossed the fields of mud i began to feel the weight of my equipment pressing on my shoulders which with my camera and spare films made my progress very slow many a time during that march the men offered to help me but knowing that they had quite enough to do in carrying their own load, I stubbornly refused. On we went, the roar of the guns getting nearer, over field after field, fully eighteen inches deep in mud, and keeping as close to hedges as possible to escape detection from hostile aeroplanes. Near a bridge we were stopped by an officer. "'What's the matter?' I asked of my interpreter. Not knowing, he went to inquire. An order was shouted the whole regiment rushed for cover to a hedge which ran by the roadside i naturally followed my friend told me that the germans had sent up an observation balloon so we dare not advance until nightfall or they would be sure to see us and begin shelling our column before we arrived at the trenches in the rain we sat huddled close together notwithstanding the uncomfortable conditions i was very thankful for the rest night came and we got the word to start again Progress was becoming more difficult than ever, and I only kept myself from many a time falling headlong by clinging on to my nearest companion. He did likewise. Ye gods, what a night and what a sight! Raining hard, a strong wind blowing, and the thick black inky darkness every now and then illuminated by the flash of the guns. Death was certainly in evidence to-night. One felt it the creative genius of the weirdest imaginative artist could not have painted a scene of death so truthfully the odour arising from decaying bodies in the ground was at times almost overwhelming we had been conversing generally during the march but now word was passed that we were not to speak under any circumstances not until we were in the trenches a whispered order came that every man must hold on to the comrade in front of him and bear to the left reaching the trench allotted to us we went along it in single file up to our knees in water sometimes a plank had been thrown along it or bricks but generally there was nothing but mud to plough through halt came the command to the section i was with this is our shelter monsieur said a voice gropingly i followed the speaker on hands and knees the shelter was about twelve feet long three feet six inches high the same in width and made of old boards on the top outside was about nine inches of earth to render it as far as possible shrapnel proof on the floor were some boards placed on bricks and covered with sodden straw there was just enough room for four of us rolling ourselves in our blankets we lay down and by the light of an electric torch we ravenously ate our bread and herrings i enjoyed that simple meal as much as the finest dinner i have ever had placed before me whilst eating a messenger came and warned us to be prepared for an attack heavy rifle fire was taking place both on the right and left of our position well thought i this is a good start they might have waited for daylight i could then film their proceedings at any rate if the attack came i hoped it would last through the next day switching off the light we lay down and awaited events but not for long the order came to man the trench out we tumbled and took up our positions suddenly out of the blackness in the direction of the german positions came the rattle of rifle fire and the bullets began to whistle overhead keeping as low as possible we replied firing in quick succession at the flashes of the enemy rifles this continued throughout the night towards morning a fog settled down which blocked our view of each other and there was a lull in the fighting at midday the attack started again taking my apparatus i filmed a section of belgians in action Several times bullets whistled unpleasantly near my head. Passing along the trench, I filmed a mitrailleuse battery in action, which was literally mowing down the Germans as fast as they appeared. Then I filmed another section of men while the bullets were flying all around them. Several could not resist looking round and laughing at the camera. Whilst thus engaged, several shells fell within thirty feet of me. Two failed to explode. Another exploded and sent a lump of mud full in my face. With great spluttering, and I must admit a little swearing, I quickly cleaned it off. Then I filmed a large shell hole filled with water caused by the explosion of a German Jack Johnson. The diameter was 28 feet across and roughly six feet deep in the center. At the other end of the line I filmed a company damming the canal to turn it into the German trenches. Then I cautiously made my way back, and filmed a section being served with hot coffee while under fire. Coming upon some men warming themselves round a bucket-stove, I joined the circle for a little warmth. How comforting it was in that veritable morass! Even as we chatted we were subjected to a heavy shrapnel attack, and the way we all scuttled to the trench huts was a sight for the gods. It was one mad scramble of laughing soldiers. Plunk! Plunk! Plunk came the shells, not twenty to twenty-five feet from where we were sitting by the fire. Six shells fell in our position. One failed to explode. I had a bet with a Belgian officer that it was thirty feet from us. He bet me it was forty feet. Not to be done, I roughly measured off a yardstick and left the shelter of the trench to measure the distance. It turned out to be twenty-eight feet. Just as I had finished, I heard three more shells come shrieking towards me. I simply dived for the trench, and luckily reached it just in time. Towards evening our artillery shelled a farmhouse about three-quarters of a mile distant, where the Germans had three guns hidden, and through the glasses I watched the shells drop into the building and literally blow it to pieces. Unfortunately it was too far off to film it satisfactorily. That night was practically a repetition of the previous one. The trench was attacked the greater part of the time, and bullets continually spattered against the small iron plate. Next morning I decided to try and film the mitrailleuse outpost on a little spot of land in the floods, only connected by a narrow strip of grassland just high enough to be out of reach of the water. Still keeping low under cover of the trenches, I made my way in that direction. Several officers tried to persuade me not to go, but knowing it would make an excellent scene, I decided to risk it. On the side of the bank nearest our front line the ground sloped at a more abrupt angle, the distance from the trench to the outpost being about sixty yards. Rushing over the top of the parapet I got to the edge of the grass road and crouched down. The water up to my knees I made my way carefully along. Twice I stumbled over dead bodies. At last I reached the outpost safely, but during the last few yards I must have raised myself a little too high for the next minute several bullets splashed into the water where i had been the outpost was very surprised when i made my appearance and expressed astonishment that i had not been shot a miss is as good as a mile i laughingly replied and then i told them i had come to film them at work this i proceeded to do and got an excellent scene of the mitrailleuse in action and the other section loading up the frightful slaughter done by these guns is indescribable Nothing can possibly live under the concentrated fire of these weapons, as the Germans found to their cost that day. After getting my scenes I thanked the officer and was about to make my way back, but he forbade me to risk it, telling me to wait until night and return under cover of the darkness. To this I agreed, and that night left the outpost with the others when the relief party came up. Shortly after news was received that we were to be relieved from duty in the trenches for the next forty-eight hours. The relief column was on its way to take our places. I was delighted, for I had been wet through during the days and nights I had been there, but was fully satisfied that I had got some real live films. Hastily packing up my equipment, I stood waiting the signal to move off. At last the relief came up. Holding each other's hands, we carefully made our way in Indian file along the trench, on to the road, and into Ramskapel. What a terrible sight it was! The skeletons of houses stood grim and gaunt, and the sound of the wind rushing through the ruins was like the moaning of the spirits of the dead inhabitants crying aloud for vengeance. The sounds increased in volume as we neared this scene of awful desolation, and the groans became a crescendo of shrieks which, combined with the crash of shell-fire, made one's blood run cold leaving the ruins behind we gained the main road and on arriving at the bridge where we had stopped on our journey out i parted with the company thinking to make my way to a cafe by a short cut over some fields i wished to heaven afterwards that i had not done so i cut across a ditch feeling my way as much as possible with a stick but i had not gone far before i knew i had lost my way the rain was driving pitilessly in my face but i stumbled on in the inky darkness often above my knees in thick clay mud. Several times I thought I should never reach the road. It was far worse than being under fire. I must have staggered along for about two miles when I perceived a light ahead. Never was sight more welcome. Remember, I had about fifty to sixty pounds weight on my back, and having had little or no sleep for five nights, my physical strength was at a low ebb. It seemed hours before I reached that house, and when at last I got there I collapsed on the floor. I struggled up again in a few minutes and asked the bewildered occupants to give me hot coffee, and after resting for an hour I made again for Fionn, reaching it in the early hours of the morning. Going to my café I went to bed, and slept for eighteen hours. The following day I packed up and returned to London. A day or two afterwards I was sitting comfortably in a cushioned chair in the private theatre at our London office, watching these self-same scenes being projected upon the screen. Ah, thought I, how little does the great public for whom they are intended know of the difficulties and dangers, the trials and tribulations the kinematograph cameraman experiences in order to obtain these pictures. End of Part 1, Chapters 1 and 2